May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. There's got to be a better way. How many times have you said that to yourself? There's got to be a better way. I mean, it is the, the motherhood of invention, isn't it? There's got to be a better If no one had ever said there's got to be a better way, we'd all be wearing wooden shoes or um, fig leaves for boxer shorts. I don't know. There's got to be a better way. We'd have to come up with a better way. If no one ever said that, we'd still be listening to music on a phonograph. As good as it was, there's got to be a better way. If no one ever said that, we would still be lighting our houses with candles. We'd be washing our clothes in the Cuyahoga River and hanging them out in the backyard to dry. There's got to be a better way. Surely you've said that to yourself many times. And mercifully, someone oftentimes has found a better way. I don't know about you, but I spend a lot of my, a lot of my spare time thinking about these sorts of things involuntarily, you know? Like, I don't intend to think about making something a better way, and I often never do actually fulfill the, the, the idea that comes in my head, but I'm constantly thinking about there's got to be a better way to do this. There has to be a better way. I think about this about every day when I get in my closet. I don't know about you, but when I get in my side of the closet, I open it up, and for a guy who wears the same black shirt four days a week, you wouldn't believe how many, like, things there are in, in the closet there, you know? And so... I always think there's got, you know, I get rid of stuff and then it grows back. I don't know what happens. but And, and I have a small addiction to shoes. It's not a great addiction. Um, it's a small addiction. But, uh, you know, down on the bottom, enough of an addiction that there's sort of an overcrowding that happens at the floor of the closet. And um, if you were keeping score at home, I'm number three in my house. I'm nowhere near the top of the list. But enough of an addiction that, that there's an overcrowding that takes place on the floor in my closet. I think to myself, like... How could I maximize this space, you know, and, and, and make something work here? One day, I remember I was with my friend, Russ, and we were getting ready to go somewhere, and both of us didn't have shoes on, so he puts his shoes on, and he starts to tie them. And I watched in fascination as he tied his shoes. Here I was, you know, an adult, 30-something at the time, and he, he ties his shoes, and he makes a loop with one hand, and then somehow holds it and makes a loop with the other string, you know, so there's two loops. And then he ties the two loops together. The finished product looked a lot like my shoe tying, but nowhere near the same process. And I was aghast. What are you doing? He said, well, I'm tying my shoes. What does it look like I'm doing? Like, that's not how you tie shoes. He's like, well, how do you tie your shoes? And I showed him. You make a loop, and then a dog chases the rabbit around the tree. Right? Into the hole, and you pull it out by its tail, and then you have two bunny ears right there. That's how you do it. Loop and swoop. That's the way shoes are tied. I sometimes wonder, is there a better way? Is there a third way? If I could come up with another way to tie shoes, I mean, every parent knows how exhausting it is to teach a child to tie shoes. If I could come up with a better, easier way, why, it'd be the... The Joe Boisel method, right? I mean, with no more bunny ears or loop and swoop, the boys away. Right here, I would be famous. But I can't. And you can't either, because you know why? These are the two best ways. This is the way you tie shoes. Nobody has come up with a better way because there's not one. If there was, by now, I think we would have found it. Sometimes it's the best way, and that's why you stick with it. Sometimes there's a slight variation. You know, in 1968, um, uh, Dick Fosbury is doing the high jump. Everybody before 1968 did the high jump the same way. 
They ran up to the apparatus and went forward, head first, over top of the, the bar and landed, you know, in the, in the padding thing on the other side. Until 1968, the Olympics, Dick Fosbury, runs up, turns around, goes over it backward. The Fosbury flop. And ever since then, everybody else does it the same way. Because it is the best way. Sometimes, someone discovers the best way, and it simply is the best way to do something. The letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament is um, it's not really a letter at all. It's more like a, a, a treatise, an essay, a sermon maybe. And its whole point is there is a better way. The point, the argument that the letter makes or that the, the, the sermon makes is that Christianity offers a superior path to God to that of Judaism. That's what he actually says. But here's the nuance. There's a very careful nuance in it. The writer is himself a Jew. One who has been inside of Judaism. And so he doesn't write sort of as an outside critic who says, you know, this is not nearly as good as this. But from inside, he says that what God has done in Jesus has made Judaism a better way. It has offered Jews a better way. So it's not like, um, it's not like a friend of yours sitting with her friend at lunch and saying, as a Gentile Christian, Christianity is superior to your Judaism. Not like that at all, but rather as a Jew inside saying God has made a better way for Israel than the way that we had previously been approaching life and faith and ritual. It's an inside argument. Um, It would be like a carpenter saying to other carpenters, the use of steel has in some sense made the use of wood obsolete. And that actually has happened, and mostly in commercial construction. Uh, my, my brother builds these, uh, these large uh, commercial buildings, and they all use steel framing. Gone is wood two-by-fours. Now it's all steel. Or you could imagine a Detroit council meeting. Let's say the early 1900s. A D- Detroit city council. And they're talking about buying, I don't know, a thousand new water troughs for horses and 3,000 new hitching posts to put all over the city. And someone stands up in the meeting and says, "Um, this is a terrible waste of money. You see, Mr. Ford has invented this horseless carriage. And we're not going to need water troughs anymore. And we're not going to need hitching posts. There's a new way that's going to revolutionize the way we do travel. It's a new way, a better way, and gone are the old ways. This is the argument that the Hebrew writer is trying to make. That God has done something in Jesus that is going to revolutionize, it is going to radically alter the way people approach him. So what is it? What is it that God has done? What's this new, radical, better way? Well, to understand that, you have to first understand a bit of Jewish practice. In, in ancient Israel, there was the establishment of law. You know this, the Torah, the Ten Commandments. You have this law, this way of living. And, and even the commandments themselves are kind of nuanced. You know, um, you shall not steal, one of the commandments. But Israel realized that you shall not steal doesn't just mean that you shouldn't take something that doesn't belong to you by stealth. Not like when you're not looking and, and I steal your wallet out of your, your, 
pants pocket or out of your purse. You know, not, not like that sort of stealing. I don't do that very often, by the way. Um, but, you know, it's, a, it's another type of stealing. There's, there are ways in which we take advantage of the poor, or, or people might do that, um, either by intentional act or even by simple neglect, not realizing that their actions have an effect. And that this, for this, people are culpable. This is the way that, that um, the law works. And so what do, you do, what do you do with the fact that you actually do stuff that's wrong? How do you deal with this? How do you pay the fine, so to speak? That was the sacrificial system. You've broke the law. How do you make it right? You give something. You give a gift. You, you show your repentance in the, the sacrificing of an animal. And I know that kind of repulses us. That's kind of, you know, we, but in ancient world, it made absolute sense. There was also another part. The law was meant for people to have a relationship with God. It wasn't over against them, sort of an arbitrary sort of, uh, you know, do these sort of things because these are the things that God likes and these are things he doesn't. It was about relationship. This is the way we were created to be. And so whenever we would violate the law, it violated our relationship with God. And so the sacrificial system was a means of bringing the people back to God. We understand this. We do all the time. Imagine a husband speaking to his wife early in the morning over breakfast. And he's a bit upset. And, and it gets more. And, and he speaks harshly to his wife. Or the other way around. The wife speaks harshly to her husband. You know, somebody speaks harshly to one another. But in this case, it works better with a husband. He speaks harshly to his wife and leaves for work and feels guilty about that. You know, I've done wrong. How does he show his, his, his repentance? How does he show his, his contrition? He shows up at the house at home with his hand behind his back. And what's in that hand behind his back? You know what's in that hand behind his back. I see these men like, oh, I've been there. Yes! Pulls out the flowers and says, oh dear, I was such a knucklehead this morning. Will you forgive me? A gift that shows contrition and wants to restore the relationship. And this is what Israel had in the sacrificial system. Here's the point. The letter to the Hebrews says, that's over. The sacrificial system has been done away with in Jesus. He has offered us a new sacrifice. How has he done that? Because he has been the very embodiment of God. God himself, who gave himself as a gift for human beings. He became the sacrifice for us. That he might restore the relationship. Not that he had done anything wrong, but that we had. And this is the way he mends the relationship. Well, what makes Jesus' sacrifice so special? Look at the text with me, will you? Will you look on page 6 in your, in your bulletin at the, at the lesson, the, the letter to the Hebrews? Verse 14 is just a a few lines down. Here's what the writer says. Every priest, do you see where I am? Every priest stands day after day at his service, offering again and again the same sacrifice that can never take away sin. But Christ. Look at that. They can never take away sins, but Christ. Christ has offered a sacrifice that can take away sin. The former sacrificial system covered it over. The writer to the Hebrews says, Jesus takes it away. It does no longer exist. 
That which was is gone. He has removed that sin. And, and look, look at what it says there. For by a single, sacri- a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. Oh, this is, this is kind of complex, rich theological thought. But here's what the author is saying. Not only has Jesus offered a sacrifice that does something for us, namely that he takes away the sin, but this is a sacrifice that actually does something in us. It transforms us. The word sanctifies. Those who are being sanctified. They are being made holy. Um, Imagine clothes in a washing machine, you know, if you could see inside of it. And you take these dirty clothes, you know, it, it, you know, young children dirty clothes. You know how they go out and they get everything all over themselves, right? And, and you, you throw them in this washing machine. And you watch it. And the suds kind of bubble up and the dirt starts to come out. And it starts to go and then there's a rinse cycle and then they, the, more water comes in and it, it starts to go out. And, and there's a change. Those clothes that were saturated with dirt have become clean. This is what the Hebrew author is saying. Those former sacrifices covered over. This one actually changes. It transforms. It makes them, makes the people, our hearts, clean, morally pure, without sin. This is what Christ came to do. He came to take and make liars into truth tellers. He came to make thieves into generous givers. He came to make adulterers into faithful spouses. He came to transform us, to make us qualitatively different kinds of human beings, the sort of human beings we were designed to be. This is how the sacrifice of Christ is superior to the former sacrifices. It does something in us. It makes us different kinds of people. Now you know this is not a one-off proposition, is it? It's not like these clothes get washed one time. It's pretty thoroughly ingrained in us. We kind of have this propensity from earliest memory of being selfish, sinful, our way. And so it's a lot of washing, a lot of scrubbing, and a lot of a process of cleaning and making us different sorts of people. But it is the goal of this sacrifice to make us like Christ. Well, if all that is true... What does it mean to us? What what do we do? How do we live this out? And the Hebrew author gives it to us. Look again at the text. Verse 22. He he, he gives us in 22, 23, and 24 three different exhortations. You know what an exhortation is, right? You know, this is when when you're saying, hey, let's let's do this. You know, let's let's us. let, Let us. And three times we get this. Let us, notice verse 22, draw near. Draw near to whom? There you go. Draw near to God. Draw near to Christ. Let us draw near. Come close. It's what you got up to do this morning, isn't it? You get up to draw close to God. And this is the, this is the Hebrew writer's exhortation. Worship. Worship not just with your outward form, but with your inward heart. With a heart that's been sprinkled clean. A pure heart. Let us worship and draw near. Not coming to God as someone who's afraid or fearful, but one who is eager and, and energetic and, and anticipates the presence of God. Let us, verse 23, hold fast to our confession. 
I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, and in the Holy Spirit, and in the Holy Catholic Church. I believe in these things, and I will not let them go, even though they might become unpopular. Perhaps you've heard. We're not always on the most popular side in history. But let us hold fast, even if it's unpopular. Hold fast to this faith that we believe in because Christ is our hope and our only hope. Verse 24, one more thing. Let us stir, let us consider how we might stir one another to love and good works. How do we encourage one another in love and good works? Well, we discourage one another from, you know, disharmony and bad works. When we see an adversarial spirit, we quell it with charity and kindness. When we see people who want to be antagonistic towards one another and fight with one another, we don't say, yeah, throw some more fuel on that fire. But we say, no. Maybe they had a bad day. Maybe there were a lot going on in their lives that time. Maybe this is a time to show mercy and kindness. Let us model godliness, model kindness, model generosity and faith. Avoid all adversarial actions. Because of what Christ has done in us, let us live in this world as people who are transformed and transforming. You see, the whole story of the Bible is the story of humans who were made to be good and pure and right, and we messed it up. We messed it up because our adversary came along and said, Oh, let me show you a better way. And it wasn't a better way. It wasn't a better way at all. It brought, it brought a, a toxin to our relationships with one another and to with God. It brought heartache and enslavement. We became enslaved to sin. It's the story of Pinocchio. You remember that one? Oh, come on. This is the way you'll find real joy and happiness. No, it's not the way you find real That's not the better way. God offered Abraham and his family a way to live out this, this relationship with God for the world and to model for the world a way to be reconciled. And what the Hebrew writer is saying is that Jesus actually showed even a better way. That he gave himself for us. That we might not only be forgiven, but that we might be transformed. We might become new creatures different sorts of people, the true humanity, that we might live out the life that God always intended us to live. The Hebrew writer is saying, there is a better way, but it is this, through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. And that is not only the better way, it is the best way, it is the only way to be the human beings that we were created to be. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.